Uh, the start of the week and plenty happening on your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. There is no substitute to maintaining our social contacts and I would encourage everybody to get going again, to get out and about if you possibly can uh, and to not be staying at home with fear. So I think I came across that same American-Canadian scammer by the Molly Malone statue about two weeks ago. If she was acting, which if it was the same girl, then unfortunately she probably was acting, then like she's a really good actress and she should probably consider doing that instead of scamming people. All you have to do is buy a bass plate, put it up, say you're a psychologist, set yourself up a website, and I think you'll have a very successful, if not deeply unethical business. And we'll start with Belle True, the Independence International Correspondent. She was talking to Derville MacDonald in the morning about her documentary on the war in Ukraine called The Body in the Woods. I, I watched it last night, Belle, and some of the details in this documentary are very grim and listeners might find it uh, upsetting. But tell me first about the body of the boy you came across in an abandoned Russian camp, the, the, the title of this documentary. Yeah, absolutely. So this was about April of last year. And for the first time, we had Russian withdrawal around uh, the capital, Kiev. So this is the first time that we were able to access areas that had been under Russian occupation since the start of the invasion in February 2022. So we went there with journalists, with um, investigators, aid workers to find out what had happened, because these areas had not had access to Wi-Fi or mobile phone networks or electricity or water so we really had had no idea what was going on um, in these areas. And unfortunately, we came across streets just littered with bodies. There were horrendous testimonies of possible war crimes, including torture, uh, rape, forced disappearances, um, abductions. And on my way back from one day of reporting, I saw a group of soldiers in a lonely patch of wood in the, these rural areas outside of Kiev. And they were gathered around the body of a young man who was face down on the ground. His hands had been tied. His legs had been tied. He'd been shot in the back and he was partially burned. And the body was right next to an abandoned Russian camp um, and trench network. So it looked like it was quite clear that this Ukrainian young man had been um, summarily executed by Russian soldiers. And for me, that image, he was in the middle of nowhere. He must have had a very frightening last few moments of his life. I, that image stuck with me and I wanted to find out who he was and what had happened to him and what had been happening in that area. The Russians, of course, will deny all charges of torture and other war crimes. But the locals you spoke to told you about civilians being moved around, as you say, being forced to dig trenches and then being killed, often far from home and, and so difficult then, Bell, to identify. Absolutely. So I started out this documentary just trying to find out the identity of this man and hopefully to track what happened to him in those last few hours, to meet his family, to ask them how they felt, what was going on. And I spent months and months and months, and I went to all the different authorities. I went around all the villages. I went to the investigators, the intelligence department in Ukraine, and the, I went to the morgues, and they all told me the same thing. It is incredibly hard because the Russians were kidnapping people, essentially, and moving them around the country uh, without any identification, without any you know, reference points. There are so many bodies which have not been identified. And that means there's so many families whose loved ones have basically just vanished into thin air. And that it was this whole world that I didn't know existed. And then we ended up you know, investigating that because it was just so heartbreaking. 
We have, of course, on this island, have our own experience with the phenomenon of, of the disappeared that you speak about in this documentary. But some of the people, Belle, you spoke to, um, they don't know where their loved ones are. Others do know, but the whole chaos of the war means that they haven't been able to claim their dead and bury them. Um, is it simply that the system cannot cope with the number of bodies or the scale of the of what they're trying to do in the aftermath of the, the attacks? I mean, absolutely. The police officers who I were talking to, um, I was talking to in various different points of the country, before the war, these guys would have been dealing with traffic violations, petty crimes. They're not equipped to deal with mass murders, mass graves, uh, you know, horrendous instances of potential torture of, of this kind of scale. And, and the whole country itself, you know, the morgues, I was in Butcher Morgue, which appears in the documentary. You know, before the war, they may have had one or two cases of the elderly died and body parts. And this is where it starts to get complicated because a lot of people were killed at the beginning of the war, but no one could get access to their body for a month. These areas became frontline areas that were heavily shelled. I mean, I, we didn't include this in the documentary because it's frankly too grim. But the, the state of the bodies when they come in, I mean, we're talking about severed limbs, things being you know, charred, burned. It doesn't look human. And that's an absolute nightmare. And this is where DNA comes into it. So it's really hard for the families because even those who know that their loved ones were killed, they have an approximate location where they believe their loved ones were killed. The bodies are being moved around. The bodies, the remnants of the bodies are, are very degraded. So you can't identify them visually. So then the DNA comes into it. And that's very complicated in a normal circumstance. But what Ukraine is doing right now is unprecedented. Most countries will wait for the conflict over to start identifying their dead. Ukraine is doing that simultaneously in the middle of a war. And Derval asked Bell about gathering evidence on war crimes. Talk to me about the importance of that evidence gathering you, you mentioned for future war crimes investigations. How exactly is that being done? As you say, they haven't waited until after the conflict has concluded. So what are they doing at present to try and retain that evidence? So, um, and actually, just to say, the numbers have actually gone up since I interviewed Yuri. So right now, he told me a few days ago, there's actually 3,600 unidentified bodies. And there may be as many as 100,000 civilians killed across the country, but they just don't don't know. And so for them, at the moment, they're doing these, um, they are exhuming mass graves, they're collecting evidence. I spoke to the head of the Domestic Intelligence Agency, um, so the equivalent of MI5, and he told me they've, they're building 64,000 criminal cases um, related to Russia's actions in Ukraine. Over half of them are related to possible violations of international law and war crimes. So you, that's just to give you the scale of how many cases they're trying to build. Right now, they've got these um, new mobile DNA units that are basically these rapid machines that are portable. They can put into a van and they're driving them around the country collecting DNA and collecting evidence. And all the sort of regional morgues have become hubs now for the various different bodies, and they've got investigators trying to operate. But it's very hard. These areas, even if there's no fighting, active fighting, these areas are heavily mined. Uh, so you, it's very difficult uh, to collect even evidence. I mean, I went with some police officers to collect a body, and the whole area was littered with mines. I mean, some you could see and some you couldn't see. So it's incredibly dangerous. Uh, there's also mass graves they're trying to exhume which are areas that are being shelled. Um, so that's very dangerous as well. And also it disturbs the evidence. It's incredibly hard 
there is you know Ukrainian prosecutors working on this and also international prosecutors and they're trying their hardest but you know obviously this is an unprecedented number and of Belle, deaths. The, yeah Bell the criminal threads um are one thing but the human threads that you've weaved I know there was one teenager who thought he had buried his mother and it turned out that it was another uh, woman's body and following those two families um on on their journey that was just heartbreaking yeah, I mean, Vladislav is his name. He's only 19. He's basically an orphan now. His mum was killed as she tried to uh, distribute humanitarian aid. She was, we believe that she was shot by Russians at that point. And he was given a body because that's, you know, the authorities were trying desperately to give the bodies to the various different um, family members. He actually cremated the body and only found out afterwards that it was the body of the wrong woman. So that meant that the family of that woman, her name is Ksenia, weren't able to cremate or bury their loved ones and this is a problem because it is very 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 hard to do identification you, you know we watch things like csi you know we watch american tv um shows where it looks like people could turn around an identification in seconds the truth is you need to have multiple reference dna reference points from multiple different people they've got to be close relatives and then you have it's a sort of get number game it's a percentage game and and even then you can get it wrong so it's it's very very hard, but I will just say as an update, I think we he may have found his mother now, so that's one positive thing. But it's taken a year. Can I ask you before I just let you go, Belle? Did you ever find out the identity of the young boy in the camp, the 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 young man who inspired the title of this documentary, The Body in the Woods? Do you know the heartbreaking thing is um, is that I didn't. I spent maybe nine months on this. I went everywhere. I spoke to everyone. I managed to get what I believe to be his case file number. But when we looked into the case file, it was actually the, um, this didn't go in the documentary in the end. It was actually a, a case file related to a bus stop that had been blown up. So this is, this is the issue. You have thousands and thousands of missing people, thousands of case files. I mean, it's like, a, you know, it's, it's unprecedented in terms of numbers and the fact this is an active conflict. So I, tried. I will keep trying. I will keep trying. Bell True talking to Derville MacDonald in the morning. And on the Ryan Tuberty show, the mystery shopper was a mystery to Ryan. Working in retail, we have a mystery shopper who grades us on how we conduct our job. The last one said the sales assistant didn't smile. I think they don't realise how hard it is to keep the false face on the whole time. Who, how do they grade you? And what is there a little slip that they, I, I mean, what, how do they, or do they say it to someone? That's bizarre. What a busybody. And the text came rolling in. The mystery shopper is a job. What? Companies request, what, this is a thing? Companies request mystery shoppers to do this job to get feedback about their service. So they send in a spy sort of thing? I mean, I'm not dissing this mystery shopper as a, as a gig. I just didn't know it was a phenomenon. So the person comes in and looks around going, not smiling, not smiling, smiling, not smiling, 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 smirking, smirking a little bit, can't tell, grimacing. Not smiling, resting bitch face, smiling, grimace. And that's great. It just ticks them off on their face. Oh, <laughs> if you're a mystery, what's it called? Mystery shopper. I'd love to hear from you. Please. I was a mystery shopper, says the text, for a large luxury store. Found plenty uh, of uh, <laughs> resting bitch face and uninterested students looking bored. Couldn't be bothered serving customers who were actually paying their salaries. Oh, I see. So you're, you, you were marking them saying, no, fair enough, that's your job. And, and, and you're right, they need to be a little more enthusiastic about being there. Government agencies also send mystery shoppers around shops to buy 
cigarettes and alcohol or indeed lot of tickets by underage people trying to trick staff. A lot of them look way over 18, but that's it. The staff member themselves can get a criminal record and the shop can lose their license. I didn't I didn't realize it. Then Nick Hennessy contacted the program about her life as a mystery shopper. So mystery shopper is a brand new expression for me. It came in uh, by text a few minutes ago. Uh, I was saying I'd never heard of it. Tell me about your story. It's around a long, long time. Well, not that I'm that old, Ryan. No, no, you weren't one of the first, of course. No, (laughs) but I studied musical theatre in London and to feed myself, a friend of mine put me onto being a mystery shopper, but I had a fabulous job of going around to these fancy restaurants going in as a shopper, a mystery client or customer, and I could bring a friend with me and we got to eat delicious food. We had a drink on the house Mm. and then we just had to do a little report afterwards. It was amazing. What were you looking for? What what was the job spec? Well, you you could choose some... So you had the menu in advance and you had to choose from maybe four particular dishes. So you had to... Um, write about your experience in regards to food, how it tasted. Then there was the service. Mm. Then there was the initial impression when you walked into the restaurant, the atmosphere, the lighting, little things like that that would enhance your experience or not in that case. Okay, I'm reminded of Faulty Towers and the Hotel Inspector. You you go in uh, (laughs) and you're undercover in some ways. And how how, how harsh were you on, let's say, the the waiting staff particularly? Oh, listen to me. I never really had bad experiences. Good. Like, honestly, because the restaurants were so lovely and the staff were so lovely. Like, I mean, I used to kind of make stuff up, like maybe the water wasn't cold enough or the starter took ages to come out or maybe two minutes to make. But generally, I had a very positive experience. But the great thing about it as well was I used to fly home, you know, when those flights were so cheap years ago. You get a flight for a tenner. I used to come home quite regularly, so I used to get to do it in the airport as well. (laughs) Nick Hennessy on The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Morning Ireland, Barry O'Kelly of RTE Investigates was looking into the issues around psychology services in Ireland. RTE Investigates has been examining the lack of regulation of the psychology sector here. The impact of this on families desperate for psychological support is explored by reporter Barry O'Kelly. During his investigation, Barry set himself up as a psychologist and he bought a PhD online. He told me more about what he found. Well, we all know there are waiting lists for services within the HSE, but there's a particular concern in relation to psychology services. There are almost 12,000 children waiting over a year to see a psychologist. So this leaves a lot of children and parents in very challenging situations. We're going to hear now from Becky, who's still looking for a diagnosis four years after she was told there were clearly signs of ADHD in her son, Patrick. I don't know if my son is going to fall behind in school. If he's going to just be labelled the boy that hits everyone or the boy that doesn't sit still or if he's going to be classed as the bold child. But I'm going around in circles, constant circles. I just want a diagnosis by a registered psychologist so that I can get services for Patrick. That's Becky there. And there is a serious issue that you have uncovered here, Barry, the lack of regulation of psychology services in this country. Yes, um, psychology services in Ireland are completely unregulated. And what we found is that delays in the public system in general are forcing families to go private where there is no regulation, no oversight 
So the HSC is then reluctant to accept assessment reports in some cases and this means the families are effectively going back onto the public waiting list. This is because of the differences in how the public sector and private sector works in dealing with this lack of regulation. And we're going to hear now from one of our experts, Mitchell Fleming, consultant clinical psychologist. In the public sector, in order to gain employment, you have to meet the employment requirements for a particular post to hold the appropriate qualifications and have gone through the appropriate training in order to obtain a post. No such standards apply in the private sector. The system as it currently is, is a mess. Anybody can set up and claim to be a psychologist. That's Mitchell Fleming there, who is a consultant clinical psychologist. And indeed, you put the system to the test, Barry. You set yourself up as a psychologist. Yes, um, anyone can. Um, Right now in the private sector, literally anyone can call themselves a psychologist. I wasn't breaching any regulation by setting up a website, by calling myself Professor Barry O'Kelly, PhD. Uh, We were able to buy one online and unfortunately there's a ready-made market which I could have entered into without anyone stopping me. Adam Harris, the autism campaigner, will explain more. It couldn't be any simpler because there's nobody to stop you. All you have to do is buy a bass plate, put it up, say you're a psychologist, set yourself up a website, maybe find some interest groups that are related to psychology that sound impressive but are probably open to anybody, sign up to those, put their logos on your website, perhaps maybe offer a slightly cheaper rate for assessment than others do. There's an urgency to access support um, and people are willing to pay. And I think you'll have a very successful, if not deeply unethical business. That's Adam Harris there. So you got yourself a brass plate with your name on it, Barry, and you actually bought yourself a PhD. Yes, as Adam said, it couldn't be simpler. There's an online website, Sheffield State University. It looks quite legitimate, except there was one picture which is a bit of a giveaway. It's a picture of Trinity College. And we did a quick Google image reverse search, which showed that, in fact, it's the real Trinity College and it's not based in America. And unlike the real Trinity, access to this college was purely a function of how much we wanted to pay. They did ask for a resume. I didn't supply one. And within seven minutes of making my application, they came back to me and said their 10 member accreditation committee had approved me for my PhD based on the resume, which I'd never sent. And they they also supplied me with this very detailed transcript outlining all the courses I had done, all the marks I'd achieved over the previous three years, all of it completely and utterly bogus. This is actually all very significant and we'll be explaining it further in the programme tonight. Barry O'Kelly of RTE Investigates and that programme will be available on the RTE player. And on Liveline in the afternoon, Shalva called Joe after being scammed in Dublin city centre. Yeah, it was Dublin City last Thursday. Uh, I went out for just a pint after work with my friends. Uh And then at 10pm, I went to get a slice of pizza from the local place next door, just off of Grafton Street, around the corner from the Western Hotel. And it was just myself and a woman uh, in a well-lit area, affluent area, and she was in tears. And he kind of goes, you know you know, how are you? Are you okay? You're in tears, you're in bits, you look like you're in your mid-30s. Yeah. Well-to-do, well-dressed. She was like jeans, nice jacket, bow in her hair, but she was in bits. So I asked her, are you okay? And Mm. she said she wasn't. And she told me her story that she was from Canada and she also had the accent. 
and she was over in Ireland visiting Dalkey, where her dead father was from, who died from Parkinson's. Wow. And she wanted to bond with the area a little bit more. And mm-hmm. she was in, she was on a pub crawl, and she had lost her bank card. So she was out of money, and she was staying in Wexford. Uh, and so it was 10.30 at night, or 10 o'clock at night. Her bus was in half an hour. She needed 13 euros 50 for the bus ride home. And you're kind of looking at her going, you poor thing. You're yeah. in a city you don't know. I, for once, have cash on me. I never do. Um, so I gave her the 20 euros that was in my bank, in my, my wallet, sorry. Um, and I just gave it to her. Big mm-hmm. hug. You know, I hope you get home safe. And sure let plan. me have your phone number so I can, you know, catch up with you. And make sure you're okay. You know the, you know the standard yeah, friendly yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I got her phone number, and then I went off. She went off her merry way. I went off mine, and I was in line to get my my slice of pizza of all things. And I texted her. I texted her, "Hey, it's Shava, the one who gave you twenty euros to get back home to Wexford. I hope you're doing okay, and that Ireland treats you better. Fair play. Uh, have a great trip." Uh, she texts back at you. Oh, gee. Uh, Sorry, I didn't yeah. see that coming. <laughs> Sorry. So you're kind of just, <laughs> oh, no, it's funny. It's funny. But you're just looking at it going, I I thought I did a good thing. And you're, you just feel a little bit slapped. Um, and if you're going to be a scammer, um, be, be a nice one, I suppose. Just two words, the F-U. Yeah, it was, she just, she spelled out, yeah, yeah. Um, she spelled out the first word, and yeah. then it was just the letter U. <laughs> and you, did you get a fright? Um, no, okay. I was. I felt more just slapped. Like yeah. it was. You kind of were still on this like glowy feeling of, I did a good thing, yeah. good deed done for the day. <laughs> were you and tempted? Were you tempted, Shalva, to text her back? No, not really, because. It was very, it was very aggressive after having done a nice thing, and it's very mm. clear that it's very clear that she's not who she claimed to be after that. Uh, was it okay, well, George? Or maybe you can't. Was the accent genuine Canadian? It to me, it seemed genuine. Okay. There was no reason to question were the, it. Were the, were the tears genuine? They seemed it, but looking back on it now, you kind of go. Well, if it wasn't so dark, she could have seen that it might have been a charade, but it mm. all seemed plausible. And the nice in me wanted to help, and that's probably the worst part, is that it's any time that I look at somebody now who might be in a little bit of distress, you can't okay. trust your first instinct to be to be nice and to ah. be kind and to want to help, and that's probably the worst part. Is and was it a, who, a who did she say died from Parkinson's, her dad or her granddad? Her dad. Her dad dies. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently. Okay. And it all sounded very familiar to caller Will. You reckon you met the Canadian fraudster yesterday? Yeah, I think so. I was uh, I was cycling home from town. I was actually on foot at the time. Which town, and, Will? Uh, sorry, in, in, in Dublin, in Dublin, just by okay. the Molly Malone statue there. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, this lady was crying and looked very... Uh, Upset, and I just asked her was she okay, and she had a Canadian accent, and she said that her um, her partner had beat her, and she had oh, some good. bruises actually. Oh here. my god! She looked a bit, uh, and she said she'd gone to the guards, uh, but they they couldn't do anything, and she needed money for a bus 
to get to, I think she said Wexford, okay. uh, to her oh. friend. And I didn't have, uh, I just used the phone these days. So yeah, I just like so many, yeah. cash, But hopefully uh, you're okay. And I think when she kind of realised I didn't have cash, she was like, okay, yeah. And then she, she, she walked off. But yeah, it sounded very similar. And what, give your description, Will, and we see the Shalva uh, uh, ring any bells. She had a scarf over her mouth a little bit. Um, she was wearing makeup for sure. She had dark hair, uh, mm. Canadian slash US, US accent. Um, Age group? She was probably 30s, okay. I would think. Small, tall, Maybe. small, tall. Yeah, sm- uh, small, yeah. yeah. She was, um, no, she was about my, my height, so I'm 5'11", five, five so maybe okay. a, little, a little smaller than me. Was she wearing it? Shalva, does that ring a bell? Yeah, sounds about right. Um, Like, I was wearing heels that night, so that would have made me about six, one in my heels. So that's about right. Mid-30s, Canadian, dark hair, makeup. Yeah, that sounds like her. And it's the same thing with going home to uh, Wexford or wherever she's staying in Wexford. Yeah, and Will, she uh, didn't. She didn't say to you, "Will you go? I'll go to the ATM with you." No, that's what. No, because I, I like I said, I, I don't even carry an ATM card anymore. Okay. Like I just have the, the phone. The phone, the phone yeah. I, I made that clear to her, and uh, yeah, she said. In see, I I did kind of uh, it did set a little alarm bell off. So I asked her which police station she had gone to and she was able to wrap it off straight away she was like oh it's just down in store street because she and had been beaten up hopefully not yeah she said she she had uh, she had gone to the guards and told them and they they were very unhelpful is what she said you know and uh, she was bawling crying like so yeah but we, we do know <laughs> that, well I do know from what we hear in this programme if there's one thing that the guardy do they take a lot of things very seriously but there was one thing our guards do actually uh, take seriously it is uh, domestic abuse or women being assaulted in any way they do now they do so she said she went to the guard station they weren't any use yeah and I said oh sh- maybe you just got a yeah bad day you know well, someone was... someone not so good in the yeah. station you should go to another station and she said yeah I did and she listed out she said oh I went to Kevin Street as well Oh yeah. Okay. Um, so By the way, do, you th- do you think it's a real Canadian accent? I don't know what's. A... Oh yeah, no. It's de- she's definitely. Uh, I'd be very surprised if she wasn't like Canadian or American. And Sharon called about an incident that happened to her dad. So I live in Cork. My eighty-three-year-old dad lives in Dublin. Okay. And he comes down to us a lot right. on train. Right. So last Tuesday week, he was actually going back home. Yeah. He was waiting in Houston for the Lewis to get to Connolly. Okay. And this girl came over to him, Canadian accent, uh-huh. no no money. Uh, I think she only wanted a fiver to get yeah. a new train ticket. And I don't know how he was clever enough, but yeah. he was. He said, oh, my family don't allow me carry cash. <laughs> and I only have my car. Yeah, fair play to and she, Yeah, I know. And she says to him, Oh well, would you like to come over to the ATM with me, Good and luck. you can get, yeah, you can get money out for me. And he says, "No, I wouldn't." He says, "The Lewis is coming in a minute, and I have to get home." <laughs> so, but how did and, you, Shalva help me here? How do you know the difference between a Canadian accent and a, an accent from the United States of America? Well, 
I'm only saying she's no, Canadian no, okay. because okay. Charles said it, but it was definitely like a definitely, North okay. American accent. Or and did your dad, similar. did he describe her at all, Sharon? 30s, petite, yeah, um, yeah. presentable. And the only reason he kind of topped that it happened was he was coming back down to me last Thursday. Okay. And he was sitting beside this lady, this older lady, who was getting the train to Westport. And the same one came over to her. And only oh, the, one, sa- the same lassie again? Yeah, same lassie, same thing. No money for her train. But she was only looking 180. So the lady from Westport gave her the, one, the 180. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And my dad didn't actually say anything until the transaction was finished because he was afraid your one might get aggressive. So that was it. She oh, walked you... off and she must be doing it. Okay. Well, that's Sharon there. Then Sarah called Joe. So I think I came across that same American-Canadian scammer by the Molly Malone statue about two weeks ago. Okay, yeah, that's that's where Will was. Yeah, tell us what happened. Yeah, so... um. It was like probably 11, half 11 at night. I was walking home from work and um, I saw this woman who looked, say, about mid-30s, I would agree. A little bit, I'm 5'10". Will mentioned he was 5'11", so a little bit shorter than me, um, like mid-30s. Um, and she was like sobbing. like, And you don't see people sobbing by the Mind Malone statue very often. Okay. So I went over to her and I was like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And she meant she gave me the same uh, domestic violence story that she'd been to Kevin Street Garda station um, and she wanted to get a bus I think she said I think she said a bit further than I think she said Kildare like I can't remember exactly but she said that she urgently needed to get a bus so I didn't talk to her for long Um, I had a fiver in my pocket um, and I gave it to her I had a fiver that I'd made in tips that evening and I gave it to her and I just kept walking but she had an American accent she had um she sounded like the same person. Oh, and the bow in her hair. I think the first girl mentioned a bow in her hair. She had that same bow in her hair, and it was the same place, same domestic violence story. Shalva, does a bow ring a bell? Bow bell. Yeah, there was there was a bow, there was a ribbon in a in a ponytail. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. I, I'm pretty sure it was the same person. Yeah, okay. that sounds yeah. like it. Now, Sarah, you just mentioned to me. I know it's a fiver, but it's a fiver you got in tips. So, you, so it's, uh, you got from working. Well, if it's going to an actual domestic violence victim, then obviously okay. it's completely so, fine to hand it over. But if it wasn't a domestic violence victim, then, yeah. you know, I would say that I'm mildly irritated. And then the problem is, if if we do come across someone who is genuinely distressed, this puts people off. Completely, completely puts people off, yeah. And she was, if she was acting, which if it was the same girl, then unfortunately she probably was acting then like she's a really good actress and she should probably consider doing that instead of scamming people. That's Sarah on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, it was that time of the week. Panty Bliss, a.k.a. Rory O'Neill and Dennis Sampson joined Ryan for the verdict on their time at the Glitter Ball. Dancing with the Stars on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Muller Corner. Mullerlicious. All right, I, I I will be I will be honest with you. I was not expecting to see you guys this morning. Are so you as surprised us. as everybody else, Dennis? Oh, are you shocked? More more than yeah. <laughs> more than well, you know, <laughs> at this stage, okay, okay, anybody going was going to be a bit of a surprise. So, and as soon as they said we were, we're dancing against Brooke, I was yeah. like, ah, well, we're yeah. out. 
Right. So yeah. actually, I enjoyed the last dance. The last oh, run. Yeah. Even when you were chatting to Darren, you, you, before the, the results came in, you were talking as if you were out. <laughs> yeah. You, you were kind of almost I would have. I would have kicked us out over Brooke and Robert. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, congratulations, what I say to you. I mean, it was, there was history made and it was emotional. And it was also, strangely, because we've spoken on the Late Late when you came on to, that week after the It's a Sin dance, that big dance that uh, took you out of the, the, the dance-off situation. Um, and I think got conversations going in people's houses about what we had, what you had talked about, about why you danced and that kind of thing. So it was, it became pretty much the reason, and you've been saying this for ages, Rory. The the, the reason you went into it was to get people aware, talking. I mean, yeah. mission accomplished. Yes. Yeah. No. No. I'm I'm very proud of what we did, and you know, and all yeah. that. Of course, I would have loved to made it to the end after getting this far and putting yeah. all the work in, but. Yeah. Take one week off. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Take a week off and then go. Were, uh, when you were um, approached, you'd been approached before, hadn't you? Yeah. And yeah. probably a few times at this yeah. stage. Uh, why did 2023 feel right compared to the other times? Um, a few reasons. One of the biggest reasons was, um, you know, the other years that asked me, you know, my diary would fill up, have filled up quite far in advance. And sure. So, um, but this time they asked me just as we were coming out of lockdowns and all of that. So my diary was still pretty empty. <laughs> and I was like, well, actually, this year, I guess I could just say right now, OK, I'll block that, that time off. Yeah. And then um, I was also trying to get back to my old pre-pandemic body. And everybody said, if I do it, I'll, you know, I, that might happen. And they were sure right, it did happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. OK, so you feel uh, yeah. like, a, like a new body and <laughs> yeah, you're yeah, back yeah. In, in action. Dennis, how, how would, you, would you describe your experience of dancing this, this season? I think it probably was more special than previous ones. Yes, and uh, this season, um, it's super special. And I'm super honoured and I'm super happy to share this <laughs> this experience with this guy yeah. because... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, he's such an amazing person. And, uh, but Panty Bliss. Well, she's another this story. This girl, come on. Yeah. Yeah. You we know. did have a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Like, just even, you know, all the rehearsing and, you know, locked in the studio together and all. We had a, a, a lot of fun. Yeah, there was a great yeah. simpatico between you um, the, from, the, from the get-go. You, you got she a sense that you just got on. She that easy. No. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to see how, how good or bad the tabloids did in terms of the headlines uh, to say sure. goodbye to you? Uh, the Irish uh, son go, went with crying at the Bliscotech. Uh, the Daily Mirror went for... Life's a drag for Panty. No. Uh, the star went, Panty blisses out. And the examiner, it's a bit straighter, says, Brooke sends Panty packing. So <laughs> they had a little fun with that. They had a little yeah. fun with that. So last night, I take it, you you, you went to indulge yourselves and drown your sorrows and what Some, have you. Something like that. And, yeah, and, and, yeah. And I trust, well, in that case, I won't keep you too long. <laughs> yeah, I went to the gym right away. <laughs> Straight to the gym for more. Okay. So Ryan asked about the remaining contestants. Brooke and Robert did the tango. Um, they got 10, 9 and 9. Okay, thoughts on their dance last night? Fully deserved. Um, Brooke is, uh, you know, our little... And, you know, she's like a... You said she was like your niece last she night. She is, like, yeah. that sounds patronising. No, mean, no, no, it's very nice. So you would say, yeah, I we love Brooke and she's our sort of rehearsing buddy and we'd always be rehearsing in the same studios together and... Um, and she can dance. And she lives near me, you know, while she's staying in Dublin. So we were always in the car together and everything and she's a great Okay, dancer. okay, so you got on well. Yeah. I'm in, I'm in. Yeah. You're all in, all <laughs> in. Okay, Kevin and Laura danced uh, at Salsa. They got an eight, eight and seven. 
Um, any thoughts on that or? Yeah, I have some some kind of <laughs> couple of notes. What I will tell him exactly. Okay, so you're we love Kevin. Yeah, of course. Like, He's a great guy. I can honestly <laughs> say, you know, like we've all gotten on so well, and you know, I wouldn't. So uh, Kevin is just great yeah. and all. Um, was he the best dancer last night? I think the scores reflect, this, you know. Yes, whatever, but. Um, Good luck to Kevin. He's a great guy. He's very entertaining. But he should have been evicted. I don't know. But, but, but. Oh, yeah. yeah. No. We get a, I'm, getting, I'm getting a sense of. of, of oh, yeah, I like yeah. that. Is it a dancing competition or an entertainment competition? There if it's an go. entertainment competition, go Kevin. If it's, a, if it's the, you know, the Winter Garden in Blackpool, um, Kevin go Panty. <laughs> I think we should have invited Panty in today, not Rory. We would have had a very different story. Okay, Carl Mullen and Emily. I mean, at 10 and 2 lines, it was a knockout. Uh, the Charleston, of course, such a great song, a great dance. Um, and uh, again, big scores. Yes, and we love Carl and Emily too. And I will say, well, nobody works harder than Carl. Yeah, like we guy, see the sweat guy, pouring put them the hours every in. bloody day. Absolutely. They really put the hours yeah. in. Yeah. Well, they were re- rewarded for it last night. Yes. And, and they were pleasantly surprised, I think, to see them. Yeah. Yeah. Still, yeah. Yeah. The table. The table yeah, is yeah, 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 yeah. 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 The, That's commitment. Place. And the shoes. He seems yeah. to be going through all those shoes. <laughs> yes. Okay, Damien and Kylie, they did the foxtrot. They got to nine and two eights. Yes, and I think maybe there's an argument to be made that Damien is the most improved of all of them. Yeah. Okay. Um, and of course, Damien and Brooke were our teammates in the team dance yes. last night. So we are team. <laughs> <What? laughs> but but um, uh, yeah, so yeah, so go Damien. Yeah. I, I had sympathy for you, both of you last night as well because of the amount of dancing you had to do. First of all, for anyone who's never danced before, uh, having tried it a tiny little bit, it is borderline positive. One of the hardest things I've ever had to try to do a few moves. What you had to do, I, last night was just impossible. I thought it was, it was relentless. I have this thing where, um, you know, the pro dancers, they've been doing it since they were babies, yeah. you know, and it's just all, it's just in their body. DNA, you know, nearly, and, they, yeah. and you can just like tell them the steps and they just go off and do them. And sometimes, of course, they get frustrated with us, you know, not being able to pick something up. No. You know, so I always say that one day I want to sit the pro dancers down and make them, you know, write the numbers, you know, from 50 to zero down while also reciting the alphabet <laughs> backwards while also tapping yeah. out some rhythm on the thing. You know, yeah, and, yeah. to yeah. get a flavour of what yeah. it's like for you. And then every time they get one of them wrong, shout at them, no! <laughs> and see how they like it. Are you talking about me? <laughs> all of you, all of you. Uh, Suzanne Jackson and Michael, they did the rumba. Uh, I thought that was knockout. I, I yeah, mean, right. I, so did the judges. 10, 10, 10. Highest score yeah. for rumba since the show began yeah. in Ireland. And it was so beautiful, From actually, Dennis, to watch. It's a 10. Yes. From Dennis a tennis. Uh, Although, the, 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 the honest the truth is, I didn't get to see their dance because ah. they were right after us. Of course, you were on yeah. the move. So we it were running around, you know, changing costumes and everything. But um, yes, it, I saw the pictures and everyone said it was stunning. It was, it was, it was, so the hand clap hustlers was that, was that the name of the that the, was the name the, of our the, the, the team names were terrible they were they were bizarre the disco <laughs> the disco dazzlers the disco dazzlers that's the name that's what one point because the name yes exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay now that you're uh, free to go about your business yeah um, who are you rating who are you putting your five quid on uh, to Brooke win for it? the win Brooke for the win Dennis Panty. Panty. <laughs> Your money is well ready spent. Uh, are you going to go for Brooke as well? I do. Yeah, 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 I'm going to go. Okay. I do. So that's, that's yeah. fair. There's an element of loyalty and reality in there. And um, Susan and Michael. 
Okay. Oh, so yeah, he, uh, he, he's roommates with Michael. So oh, very good. Okay, so he's, it's not because of that. No, it, not it, because of that. Though, it's about ninety percent because of that. a large dose of sparkle faded last night. Says the text when Panty and Dennis departed the floor. Apart from the sequins, the feathers, and the gorgeous wig, we saw an amazing person. So warm. So funny, so talented. Uh, so they, these are the listeners and the viewers uh, mourning your passing from the show. Uh, Rory, you are fantastic, says the text. Danced beautifully and came across so well. You are such a brave person and really have given people uh, the human side of drag. Not yeah. nicely put. I, I didn't even know my mother could, could text. She, <laughs> she, she went down to the post office yeah. to send this in immediately. Telegram. Rory <laughs> O'Neill, a.k.a. Panty Bliss and Dennis Sampson's from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on the Today programme, Derville MacDonald was sitting in for Claire and three years on from the first case of COVID here. The WHO's Dr David Nabarro was talking about the current worldwide position with COVID. Good morning to you, David. Good morning to you, Davil, and good morning to all listeners. It's nice to be with you again on the show. It really is. And listen, remind us, uh, David, um, three years in, but what is the situation worldwide regarding COVID-19 at the moment? Well, thank you. First of all, as as has been uh, said in your introduction, this is a, a really massive pandemic. Uh, and we're just going into the fourth year. Uh, more than seven million people are known to have died with the pandemic. And um, uh, we suspect that actually it may have been even higher. And what I'm saying to everybody is the following. This is still an evolving situation. New variants of the virus are emerging. I expect there will be new waves of infection. But if we can, as has been recommended by the Irish chief medical officer, keep ourselves vaccinated if we are in the at-risk groups, that's older people and people with other illnesses and people who are highly exposed, like health workers, if we can keep ourselves vaccinated, then that should keep us secure. We should not not stop ourselves from being vaccinated if we're at risk. Um, obviously, classification in these uh, affairs matters. So it's still classified as a health emergency of international concern. What does that mean in practice? In, in practice, uh, that means that the World Health Organization sees this as a major threat. And that's because of the numbers of issues that are not yet fully understood, ranging from what new variants will emerge to how long will the vaccines protect us for? And it's because of those unknowns that the committee that looks at whether or not we have an, an emergency of international concern says, yes, keep it in that category, at least for the time being. And I believe that's absolutely right. Uh, Professor Breda Smith, who's our chief medical officer, there's a you know a huge multimedia campaign on at the moment, um, based I suppose in large part on the fears around the effects on isolation and mental and physical health that many people, particularly older people and vulnerable groups, experienced during um, the pandemic. Um, do you agree with those sentiments to, to to get out again? If you haven't returned to doing the things that you love, do so now. Absolutely. Uh, like everybody, I had to put up with the isolation associated with lockdowns during 2020 and 2021 in particular. 
and I found it very unsatisfactory. It changed my ability to relate to other people. And initially, I was quite scared to re-establish contact. It's getting better now. But I want to say to everybody, there is no substitute to maintaining our social contacts. And I would encourage everybody to get going again, to get out and about if you possibly can, uh, and to not be staying at home with fear. I don't think it's justified. And the consequences of isolating ourselves for our mental well-being, uh, as well as for our social interactions, are just too great. So, yes, out and about, please. One issue, uh, David, of many that became uh, divisive, um, highly politicised uh, during the pandemic was the wearing of face masks. Um, but for those who are vulnerable or for others, I mean, what, what would you advise, uh, particularly perhaps in areas of crowded um, you know, situations or in a medical setting? First of all, please, could everybody who feels that they're more secure if they're wearing a face mask or if they're asking others to wear a face mask around them, please go on doing it. There's nothing to be gained from saying it's wrong to be wearing face masks. So even though I'd prefer to be masked, I'm going to put my mask away. If you are feeling more comfortable masked, do so. It's interesting. I was in an airport uh, uh, yesterday and I noticed that there was still a lot of mask wearing going on. And in addition, that the airport staff were incredibly uh, sympathetic and encouraging of people who wear masks. Lastly, I would say that in my experience, masks do make a lot of difference. They do reduce the likelihood that if you've got the virus in your body, that you will transmit it to others. And that's the view of the World Health Organization. It's hard to prove it. But based on my own personal experience and what I've heard from others, uh, I would say if you want and feel good about being masked, don't hesitate to do so. It, do it doesn't cost you very much and it certainly uh, does not impact uh, it should not impact on your ability to maintain your social life. Sir, Dr. David Nabarro talking to Daryl MacDonald in the morning. And on Morning Ireland, marking the agreement to protect the world's oceans, the High Seas Treaty, here's Mary Wilson. Again for the future of humanity. That's how President Michael D. Higgins described the High Seas Treaty agreed by United Nations members at the weekend. This agreement has been almost two decades in the making. It provides a legal framework for parts of the ocean outside national boundaries. Two thirds of the world's oceans are currently considered international waters and until now, without protection, marine life has been at risk of exploitation from threats like climate change, overfishing and shipping traffic. To tell us more about about the treaty and why it matters, I'm joined by Dr. Olive Heffernan, marine biologist, science journalist and lecturer at John Hopkins University. And her book on the high seas is also due for publication shortly. And you're very welcome to studio, Dr. Heffernan. Thank you for having me. In the, the years and years that it has taken to agree this treaty, what has been happening to international waters, to the high seas? Well, I think the fact that they're owned by nobody is what makes them so unique. So, I mean, as you said, these waters start um, beyond national jurisdiction, typically at the edge of the exclusive economic zone of nations. So 200 miles from shore. And so we've developed a real out of sight, out of mind philosophy with the high seas. It's sort of a classic tragedy of the common story, belonging to nobody. They've become a dumping ground. They've been overexploited. You know, offshore, it's just sort 
sort of lax enforcement and apathy. Um, so it's become a bit of a free for all. And it's not that it's lawless, but um, it's sort of, you know, piecemeal regulation and none of the bodies that sort of manage activities on the high seas, whether it's shipping or fishing or deep sea mining, have conservation at the heart of their agenda. And so this treaty looks to reset the balance, really. So are you with Michael D. Higgins on this? Is this a gain for the future of humanity? How big a gain? I mean, it really is a gain. There's only so far that this treaty can go, but what it will do is it will give us a framework to create large marine protected areas in international waters. Right now, only 1% of the high seas is protected and most of that is in Antarctica, in the Southern Ocean. Um, So it's been basically in a legal sense, impossible to create these marine sanctuaries offshore. And scientists say that we need to protect 30% of the planet, including the high seas, um, if we're to stem the loss of biodiversity, if we're to address the ecological crisis that we now face. And I'm mindful it's taken 20 years to agree this, but is agreeing at the easy part, how do you police it? I mean, that's a great question. I think in the last decade, that has actually become much easier. So um, non-profits, for example, are using satellite data to um, track ships across the ocean now. And it's possible to see anomalies in data. For example, it's possible to see where like a distant water fishing fleet is breaching the boundaries of a reserve. Um, of course, then you need to alert some sort of coastal patrol and, and we don't really have the who, resources. Who calls them exactly. to account? I mean, yeah, but we, we're kind of one step closer. Now we have the ability to create the reserves. We have the ability to actually see who's breaching those regulations. But, but are we there yet? We have the, the, the agreement now, but do the nuts and bolts need to be put in place? Absolutely. And, you know, it's kind of hard to say how long that's going to take You know, some people have said maybe this will be in place in a couple of years. It might take five years. These sorts of international treaties can take a long time. And you need them all on board all of the time. If they opt out, does does the agreement fall? Well, I mean, the way they negotiated this was great, in fact, because um, often these things have to work by consensus in terms of, you know, the creation of the reserves, um, which would be tricky because maybe there's big fishing nations that might not be completely on board with that. But um, they've they've set it up in such a way that it's by majority vote. So there shouldn't have to be an opt out. I'm wondering as well, how does this impact this country, for example? How does this impact our fishers? How does it impact? And we were talking about it on the programme last week. Um, wind energy development at sea. Yeah, I mean, one of the the sort of points of this treaty is that it's going to put the squeeze on industry a bit um, offshore. So. What it won't do is curtail existing industries on the high sea. So those are already managed by existing bodies, shipping, fishing. It won't do anything to curtail existing fisheries on the high seas. But what it will do is it will sort of put the brakes on um, future development. So a good example is um, the idea that we might develop a twilight zone fishery. And um, so the twilight zone is a mid layer of the ocean between 100 metres and 1000 metres depth everywhere in the ocean. So there's a substantial twilight zone fishery in the Atlantic. Norway is interested in fishing this. In the past year, Ireland has started to talk about the possibility. You know, we have huge overcapacity in our fishing Mm -hmm. fleet. What is it doing? Maybe it could go out and fish the twilight zone. And 10 years ago, um, scientists 
said that they, they had discovered that this is the largest untapped fishery on earth. Dr Olive Heffernan from Morning Ireland with Mary Wilson. And on the Ryan Tiberty Show, the depiction of ageing in art. Dr Alana James, an artist in Kinsale, was chatting to Ryan in the morning. So you are an artist living in Kinsale in the county of Cork and you're trying to change a narrative. Talk to, tell me more. Oh, well, I think people go into being older, meaning over 75, 80s, with a bit of trepidation. Um, and I'm 70, so it's mm-hmm. just I'm beginning to have those feelings myself. And I'm seeing that everywhere there's an image of older that looks like people with walkers. It looks like yeah. advertisements for medications. And there's a lot. Ireland has a lot of things pushing back on that, but it's still a narrative that has a lot of uncertainty. Well, that, so I decided yeah. to do a bunch of portraits of people yeah, could... and who are older to change the narrative. Well, it's 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 uh, it's been on my mind in the last few few weeks because of guests that I've had on this show and um, and on the TV show, all of whom are in their seventies. But more more importantly, for our chat, I think really their eighties, nineties, and beyond. And something has changed in the in the air and in the culture, for sure, in terms of people getting old differently and living longer and. Just you meet people in their eighties who look twenty years younger than that, and it, it's changed dramatically. But do you feel that culturally, maybe that 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 we haven't caught up with the reality. Well, I just had a conversation with a friend of mine who's mm. um, in her forties, and so she was saying, "Wow, look at you! You're doing all these things." And there's these other examples of people who are doing all these things. But at least it used to be that you got to a certain age and then all of a sudden you got old. So still, we're in that transition. Yeah. Of and, and if you're facing it yourself, you definitely want to go on one road rather than the other. Mm. So, so as many as examples as we can have out there of people who are um, 80s and 90s and who have a full life story, then that's what I want to portray. Okay. And, and tell me about the portraits. So it's a they're digital collage. So it's not sitting around and having somebody paint you for hours and hours. It's a picture of a person, life a life size picture of a person. So mm. they'll be displayed, and you'll be looking them in the eye. And then around their feet, the background will be images from their past, where they grew up, where they live. Uh, maybe the farm they lived on, whatever. And then around their feet will be these bubbles which are moments in time from their life that add up to who they are as a person. So that's what I'm trying to get to is who you are rather than, oh, that's an old person. More like, oh, that's a person who probably has a great story. Dr. Alana James from The Ryan Tupperty Show. the grand stretch and maybe a good time to spring clean your finances. Derbal MacDonald was talking to personal finance expert Owen McGee. Owen, um, you've been getting helping to get people involved in a spring cleaning of your finances. Why is this uh, time of year a good one to get your finances in spick and span? Well, one of the things like if you're kind of going on a fitness journey or you're changing your life or you're doing lots of things like that, January 1st can be the the time to do it. But the last thing you want in January is to be 
analysing how much you spent over Christmas. So February is a better time to do that, right? And it's a better time because you're kind of getting stuck into the new year. The year has started off and you're going, okay, the stuff that just started on the 1st of January that fell away by the 7th or 8th of January that you're not doing anymore, you, you've kind of pushed that out of the way and you're saying, okay, let's actually take this on. And people react really well to this this challenge. So any of the challenges that I put out... Yeah, the last time I spoke to you, I did print off the bank statements but <laughs> you just didn't do the next maybe bit. I needed to do the next bit but, but for some people um, that idea of actually just printing them off is really really just intimidating to sit down and look at your spend yeah and I, I it's one of those things you know what it can be daunting it can be upsetting sometimes when you look at it and you say oh, look at all that money I spent and what do I have to show for it is often a feeling that people will describe afterwards but it can also be really empowering right where all of a sudden you are controlling your finances your finances aren't controlling you and when you just take the bull by the horns and say you know what I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it in a short sharp stint I'm going to allocate no more than 10 or 15 minutes on tackling one thing to do with my finances. And that's the whole point of this Spring Clean Challenge is to tackle one thing to do with my finances once a week that you kind of go, okay, I'm going to do this now. I've got it going. I feel good about it afterwards. I didn't want to do it beforehand. I've done it now. I feel good about it afterwards. And now I'll, I'll be happy to jump in next week. But when you sit down and you go through your uh, bank statement, um, sometimes we sometimes we confuse in life what our wants and our needs are. So do we go about sort of addressing that when you when you open finally and print off the bank statement? Yeah, and I would I I've done some work with schools, in fact, where we've kind of identified the difference between wants and needs, and it's our basic. It's a really basic lesson we need to teach ourselves. And we probably are very good at when we're six and seven and eight years of age. But when we get to 60 and 70 years of age, I think it's kind of waned off. But you do. It's about that kind of there's always opportunity to clean your finances up, to spring clean your finances. But is what I'm calling it at the moment. right? There's always that opportunity, but it's about taking those opportunities. It's about the next time you walk into a shop and you pick something up. And ask yourself, if you want to use those that wording, is this a want or is this a need? I love the 72 hour rule. And it's one of those things that people really What's love that? to hear. So when you want something, put it back. 72 hours later, if you still want it, it was probably something you should have bought for yourself in the first place. But what happens over that 72 hour period is oftentimes you kind of go, I'm not really interested in that anymore. And people will always come back to me and say, oh, after 24 hours, I found something else that was much better for what I was trying to achieve. Or... I forgot and 96 hours later on what do I do now you start the 72 hours again because if you really wanted it you would have remembered after 72 hours Owen McGee talking to Daryl MacDonald in the morning and that's it for Playback Daily so mind yourself till next time